So hello and welcome to the 50th episode of Drill to Detail, the podcast series about the world of big data, analytics and data warehousing in the cloud. So my name is Mark Whitman and I'm very pleased to be joined in this special episode by the first ever guest on the show, Stuart Bryson, who came onto the show again last year and joins us once more for this 50th episode. So welcome to the show, Stuart, and uh, how are things over in Atlanta? Things are going great. We've been busy, uh, growing as usual, um, and uh, making our way into into different technology stacks, and that's always interesting. So um, it's been a lot of fun. Good, excellent. So uh, Stuart, so as this is our 50th episode, um, I'll be going to do something a little bit special later on. When we, when for the first time ever, we're going to bring a second mystery guest onto the show. Um, who you don't know who it is either, um, but actually you're very kindly going to interview them for me. So uh, you're set for that? All set. As I tweeted, I think uh, earlier in the week, I feel like General Custer asking for directions on his way to Little Bighorn. Uh, I hope that this uh, this goes well. Uh, we'll see. I got the questions. I'll make sure that the that the guest knows that that these are your questions and not mine. So Stuart, so there probably are one or two people that don't know who you are um, still. So do you want to just explain, you know, what who you are, what you do, and um, I guess how we, we know each other? Absolutely. So um, I've been a colleague. I was a colleague of yours for I think six six years at the old company we worked for. <clears throat> uh, about four years ago, I started a new company called Red Pill Analytics. Uh, we were pretty much just an Oracle BI and data integration consulting company at that time. About two years ago, we we started really uh, pivoting and 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 going after the public cloud really and focusing there. And that's what we've been doing for the last two years. About forty or fifty percent of our revenue comes from public cloud implementations, and we're pretty proud of that. Excellent. So, uh, so Stuart, I always remember you as the person that would argue with me over absolutely every single thing that I uh, suggested in our old well, couldn't role. I, so, uh, couldn't I say the same thing about you, Mark? I know, it I know. Takes, I mean, we, we're, good, we're good friends, but I don't think we ever, ever actually agreed <laughs> on anything ever. Um, but I suppose that's the kind of essence of a, a good working uh, uh, sort of uh, relationship, really. That, uh, that that was good fun. Yeah. So yeah, um, I think the the solution was usually somewhere between the two of us, and probably better for it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm still not entirely signed on for Agile, to be honest. We'll get onto that later on, maybe in the next bit. So uh, that's still something I still couldn't bring myself to do. But anyway, um, so Stuart, so a couple of reasons I wanted to get you on um, on the show, apart from the fact, obviously, you are our first guest and uh, you always are. Uh, Always good for an argument in a, in a podcast, which is good. Um, with you, a couple of things going on that theme you talked about there, um, a couple of things you've been doing recently. There was an event that you ran recently with um, some of the vendors that I've been uh, talking about a lot on this show recently. Uh, so, uh, you know, Looker, um, Snowflake DB, I think, were there as well, and so on. And so I want to talk about that really and, and what led you to that and how you kind of, I suppose, how you transitioned from doing that event a few years ago based around the kind of Oracle technology we used to use to yep. you know more of this new world serverless you know as a service kind of technology and then also i noticed uh, you, you hit it well but you were uh, you were you were you were you did some work at google uh, a while ago you and uh, some <laughs> colleagues and uh, which is fantastic i mean you tweeted about it the other day and i said officially i am massively jealous because you were going into google delivering bi for them using their products um, and, and how fantastic is that? So I want you to talk about that and, and what was involved in that. And I suppose two things from there. What was it like delivering BI in Google? I mean, that's interesting. But also, how did you approach it, especially with, again, these new world technologies, um, everything by API and all that kind of stuff? So Certainly. I think they're two, I suppose, practical examples of uh, of, of kind of a lot of things we've been talking about on this show. So 
let's start off with first of all with this event you ran then so tell us about the event tell us about the event you ran and just very high level and what were the vendors involved now absolutely so uh we call it the jump program it's a it's a play on the on the matrix reference that uh that our company sort of has in its in its branding and that was you know when we ran it several years back it was we were focusing more on agile methodologies using oracle bi tools which don't necessarily lend themselves well to that so the sort of the pivot we kept the name uh we had some we had some marketing um you know behind that keeping that name but instead of really focusing on on, on agile delivery with a B, big a so to speak we were focusing more on just being agile in general about doing analytics and bi so not necessarily from a development methodology but just agile in its true meaning which mean, mean means being reactive to to environments and so we we thought we thought the the name played well again so it was really more about you know what can you do in a in a fast amount of time uh, with, with with very little provisioning, so a lot of these tools. So it was Snowflake um, as the data warehouse that we used. We used Fivetran to replicate an on-prem Oracle database to Snowflake, and then we uh, used Looker, um, the Looker uh, Analytics and BI tool, the cloud-based analytics and BI tool, to uh, report against that Snowflake uh, replicated data set. All of this was done live, so we started with no data in Snowflake at the beginning of the morning. We replicated it over. Uh, we demonstrated the functionality of Fivetran. We demonstrated uh, functionality that Snowflake has, specifically their data sharehouse capabilities, We uh, their elastic sizing and resizing. So we ran, executed some workloads that caused the, the cluster size to expand and, and contract. And then, uh, uh, and then also um, uh, demoed their, you know, sort of zero copy cloning capabilities they have. And then we moved on into Looker, and we had, uh, you know, actually had the the attendees develop some LookML. We started with a with a LookML explorer that was already uh, mostly done, but needed to be ex- extended. So the attendees got to extend that, and then from that extended LookML model. They went in and built a custom dashboard from scratch. Okay, okay. So, so I mean, I mean, we'll get, we'll get onto the detail of the kind of products in a second. But so you're still, you're still going down the agile route then, which is, which is, <laughs> which is interesting. So I, I kind of comment I made about agile projects a while ago. It, it strikes me as like communism in, in that you know. Oh, I agile heard that. Project, yeah, project, you basically called me a, a communist on air, didn't you? Well, <laughs> whenever an agile project goes wrong, it's typically because the, the kind of the, the the answer is well, it wasn't agile enough. You know, it wasn't true agile, and and that reminds me of like countries that had communism where it goes wrong, and then basically wasn't they say well it wasn't communist enough, and then everyone yeah. dies at the end, and it's just tragic, you know. And, and <laughs> I, I kind of what I would say to to, to counter that is. I mean, are you, are you, I suppose in a way, are you the kind of Karl Marx of, of Agile in that you do do it properly? Or, or is it, is it, is it a bit of a scam really? I mean, what, what do you think on, what's your considered view on lowercase, uh, lower letters Agile now then? Okay. So we certainly do believe in it. Uh, when, 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 uh, we have a, a service called Capacity Analytics and that's our, uh, development on demand service and about 60% of our customers engage with us that way. And we actually sell it. It's a monthly service. Uh, hopefully, we, we sell it in larger increments than that, but you can buy it just a month. 
and we actually sell it in terms of story points. So it's not about how many hours you get, it's how many points you get that month. So when we're when we're doing that service, we're, we're very much about agile methodologies and boards and all that sort of thing. But we do recognize that we have a lot of customers that, that simply, you know, can't can't or won't or it's not applicable for them. So we definitely aren't uh, <laughs> communistic about it or uh, <laughs> uh, in that way. But but I certainly do believe in it, um, even for, you know, for BI and especially as, you know, when we start looking at newer technologies, there's a lot more code that's involved in, in delivering analytics projects today. Not necessarily, but if you're looking at newer tools, some of the things you talk about, data engineering, data science, et cetera, there's a lot more code that's being that, that's involved today. And Agile really did grow up around, uh, you, you know, real code development. So I think it's more applicable than ever there. But if you're using a set of tools or if you're a sort of a legacy team, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but if you're, you've been using legacy non sort of non-source source, uh, non-code tools to build analytics and, and data pipelines, then it might not be right for you. We do believe that there are uh, lots of little lessons that you can learn from Agile that you can apply to almost any, uh, you know, project management uh, philosophy. But uh, and, and this jump program that we ran, we we didn't do boards. We, we didn't do any of that sort of stuff. So we were very much approaching it from a little a, uh, a agility perspective that just being quick, um, iterative. I think there's a lot uh, it b- being iterative, refactoring, not trying to solve all the prob- all the BI analytics problems in one go, but, but solve them a, li- a little bit at a time. And if you look at replicating data from a source system and going after it directly, you know, without transformations, without ETL, you really do have to be pretty, pretty agile, little a agile in your approach to that. So do you think, do you think now that BI has become more decentralized and it's being more done by users themselves, do you, do you think that an irony of that is that, is that actually the whole talk of methodologies has gone away and that people now just get on with it and do stuff and it's rare to get a BI team more than a couple of people really for more than a couple of weeks doing a piece of work. Do, do, they, do those bigger projects formally organized in that way still exist? Well, uh, th- they do and we see them. But but when you start talking about proper scrum, proper, you know, pick, pick whatever agile methodology you want to use, we don't see that happening a lot. But we do see the principles of agile using boards. Um, you know, all work is 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 logged with with an issue on a board. Boards are, are moved between sta- stages. Code is committed, hopefully, if you're using source control. And so we, we, I think that's more valuable now for a decentralized program because, um, you know, especially with the sort of the whole concept of microservices now is that, you know, you don't check in your entire enterprise um, code base into one repository anymore. Um, as we used to in the old days. Now it's a whole lot of little Git repos running around everywhere. Perhaps there's a Git repo per per team, and I think that that just the basics of running a board, doing burn down, knowing where you're at um, um, in the middle of the iteration, and thinking in terms of iterations instead of six month or twelve month projects. Mm. Yeah. So so. Um, the technology you used in this in in the jump in the jump program, you talked about Fivetran and 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 Snowflake and so on. I mean, they're they're kind of all quite atomic technologies that don't, I suppose, in a way they they're obviously not from the same vendor, but they integrate and so on. There, um, 
and we'll get onto that in a sec, but you know, we used to talk about that as being something we could do with more monolithic technologies like, say, Oracle BI and, and so on there. Um, I mean, obviously, everything's in evolution, but would you still advocate using agile methods and things like the extreme BI approach that we talked about in the past, which don't ever look up on the internet because it's not the same as what we talked about? <laughs> um, but would you, would you advocate that still with things like, say, RAC, for example, Oracle Analytics Cloud, or, or is that really only really practical with some of this new technology? So, you know, I, I'm not trying to plug uh, our technologies, but we did write we did write a, uh, a product called Checkmate, which was trying to um, solve some of these issues. And by the way, that that product is free now for anyone to download. Um, so I, I certainly do think it still applies and that that uh, sort of concept if you're using Oracle technology certainly applies. But in these newer technologies, um, the, you know, you're not buying into a particular cloud or a particular cloud vendor. You're buying a service. And I think that the idea that that Fivetran knows it's not the entire solution for analytics. Snowflake knows that it's not the entire solution, and so does Looker. And I think the idea that these companies all support, Looker supports BigQuery, Snowflake, Redshift, um, and that doesn't keep S- Snowflake from, from you know partnering with them. So I think the idea that your technology needs to support a lot of things is a good thing. Um, you're able to, to, to plug in different technologies that, that, that suit your needs instead of trying to decide which one vendor am I going to go to to buy an entire stack. And the, ba- and, and the fact that all of them sort of uh, approach this from REST APIs, integration, sort of standard integration uh, techniques is really where perhaps – um, you're better off now that that these um, vendors are trying to only be a small part of the, of the puzzle. Well, the problem, I think the problem with, yeah, and let's name names, the problem with the Oracle stuff we used to work with or any other vendor that would have yeah, massively integrate their, their BI and their data integration tools with the rest of their stack is actually the things they integrated in with weren't the things that we were interested in. They were more concerned exactly. about being integrated in with, with kind of, I don't know, SOA suite and, and, and stuff like that. Fusion middleware. And, and, right. and actually there was, a, there was a kind of an overhead, a tax to pay with that really because it would slow down releases. It would do a lot of stuff exactly. that was not relevant to us. So actually, a lot of that integration wasn't relevant to the sort of projects you and I were doing. Whereas the integration you get with, say, I don't know, Stitch or, or Fivetran with, with with GCP or stuff like that, they're actually relevant. They're actually relevant uh, integrations. Yeah, it's about dealing with data. It's not about dealing with middleware, right? So, it's a you know you're you're exactly right that that trying to put all of these products in a in a single unified sort of Java platform wasn't necessarily valuable to people who were trying to analyze data, and so I think that that now the sort of the plot the the the, the plug-in capabilities between these products are really about sharing data, not sharing infrastructure. And that's where the real value comes in, I think, is that we're, we're, we're up and running, and that's what we hope to get across to our attendees of the JUMP program. You're up and running quickly because all of these things know how to talk to each other, but not but but they know how to talk to a lot of things, and th- and that's really yeah. their, their their strengths. Yeah, exactly. So tell us, so for anybody who doesn't know what Fivetran is, just explain it in the context of what what is it what does it do? But how does it relate to the tools that you and I used to use? Um, and what, I suppose what role does it play within this kind of stack? 
Certainly. So uh, I do want to do a quick shout out to to all the vendors, Five Trans, Snowflake, and Looker were all sponsors for this event. So we were uh, very thankful for that. And then they, they also sent representatives to, to take part in it. So that we were really thankful for that. So Five Trans is a replication technology. Um, it's 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 low provisioning replication technology. So if you think of other I won't name names, but if you think of other replication technologies that you and I have both used over the years, it's 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 a heavy IT involvement usually. There's there's things to install on servers. There's connectivity be- between servers that has to be configured. But when you look at FiveTran, it's really just a web GUI interface um, where you connect uh, your Snowflake um, instance to an on-prem instance. And what we actually used was, a, was an Oracle uh, database. And, and now it was, it was running in, in Amazon RDS, but in all, basically, in, in, in every way we went after it, it basically mirrored an on-prem Oracle database. And so, uh, so Fivetran replicates that. It doesn't try to be a transformation engine, really. It does some small bits of transformation, but it tries to deliver the schema Pretty much how it how it sits, especially for Oracle, how it sits in the in the on-prem source system. Is that enough though? I mean, I remember I interviewed um, uh, a Five Tran a while ago, and, and I was trying to puzzling out during the interview what was the what was the the, the unique value they brought. And in the end, I, I kind of concluded it was <clears throat> the connectors, which other vendors like say Stitch. Um, think of a commodity. If Five Tran are the ones that actually think there's a real value in that, and they put a lot of effort into those into those connectors. But as you say, um, they don't really do anything around transformation. So, where, where is that really? Where's the value in that for most people when when most connectors these days are free and, and generic? Well, so so I think I'll I'll come back to this sort of the agile spin on this a little bit, which is, you know, if you replicate your source system schema to a data warehouse. You can knock out 60% of your requirements that way. So why why must we sit and wait for um, endless amounts of ETL transformation logic to get the other 40% when we can just replicate the, the schema, do our transactional reporting, and a lot of our, our sort of uh, strategic reporting as well that way? Um, and I think you know Taylor was the um, was the attendee at, at at the jump program, and he had this question uh, from the audience, and he said, you know, we're not trying to to solve all those problems. We're trying to solve the ones that we can solve uh, effectively. And yes, you probably do for for some of some of your real uh, content curation. You might have to investigate doing some sort of data transformation, but that's where Looker came in as well. So Looker has a a metadata model. So if you're if you've been using a um, more of a legacy or, or, or big box uh, BI tool in, in the past, you appreciate the, the what a metadata layer can give you. And so Looker is in, is invested in having uh, a metadata layer that's that's much easier to develop than I, than I would argue that some of this, these tools from the past. It's much more flexible. So that's the other thing that we were trying to demonstrate is that you, you know if Fivetran can give us sixty percent. And the Looker model can give us 20-30% more, we're really getting close to full coverage there. And so why do we why and and let's ETL when it's necessary. That's one of the sort of concepts that I that I tried to preach back in the extreme BI days was that we're not necessarily saying that you don't need ETL at all, but it's not necessarily the thing you roll up your sleeves and do on day one. Mm. 
so so I've got a, a metaphorical box of T-shirts in my office with stream sets <laughs> on the front and and your photo on the back of it, um, and because you, you know, you've been quite a big fan of stream sets and and they um and uh, and and they were quite kind of when I when they came on the show before they talked a lot about yep. um, data drift and how we deal with evolving schemas. I mean, given all these bits you're stitched together yourself, how do you handle change over time and the concept of data drift and all just the inevitable kind of velocity of change within these environments with these kind of tools that aren't integrated by themselves? Yeah, I mean, you've got me there. there there's not a, a solution uh, for data drift here. Now, now let's, let's sort of... Uh, Define what that uh, is, first of all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So data drift is the idea that, that you have columns that change, uh, their data type, their length, their uh, columns are added, columns are subtracted uh, over time in a source system. And if you talk about it from a stream sets perspective, their tooling really supports the, the, the idea that, that you'll get data drift. And if a column... Um, has been added, it's not going to break anything. If a column's been subtracted, it probably won't break anything if you've written your pipelines correctly. So they, their idea of flowing data between, you know, sort of mostly big data technologies, but cloud technologies as well, is that you can um, do a good job of supporting data drift. Um, Fivetran is not, is not there. If the model changes, they're going to go make changes to their to their APIs and their connectors, and they're going to deliver those those new mo- uh, those new columns, those changed columns, etc. There's an auditing schema uh, that that Fivetran has to to allow you to track some of this, but in general, you're go- you're going to have to roll up your sleeves. Now you can do some things in Looker uh, that um, isolate you from from these uh, data drift changes as well by only referencing columns that are necessary for your model, et cetera, so that if a column's been added, it's not going to break anything. If a column's been subtracted and you're not actively selecting that column, then, then nothing's going to break. But there is more work um, involved if you're not using a, a data integration technology that truly supports data drift. Okay, okay. So let's get on to Snowflake then. So Snowflake, I, you, I've gone from um, from bemused, uh, I've noticed, of, uh, whatever, to being well. It was so Snowflake. What the, the thing that struck me with Snowflake was was two things. One was the practical difficulty at the time that I was having <clears throat> with moving a kind of traditional data warehouse workload into BigQuery. <clears throat> so a lot of the kind of the, the the activities and the and the transformations that I was used to doing, even things like say change slow change dimensions, was a bit harder within BigQuery. Yeah. I got that. And also, when I went to the partner Looker event with that, uh, and Kevin was there, your, your business partner, it just struck me how much of the Looker implementations were running on 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 uh, on, uh, on Snowflake. And there's obviously something there that is is, is resonating with customers. And, and the only thing about, I remember, uh, so Snowflake introduced this thing called a share house. So that yep. keeps my kids reminding me of that thing that Donald Trump said about about the African countries. <laughs> in that, but it's a share house. It's a share house, not a whatever house. Um, Mark Rittman's uh, comments are his own. Exactly. So, but tell me, what is a data share? How can we get this right? What is a data share house, and why is uh, what is a data share house, and why are why is Snowflake so popular in this kind of world, really? So a data share house is, is the concept that we, we don't need to necessarily be moving large amounts of data between platforms. If you think about like sort of the old days where I had my Oracle database, you had your Oracle database, and if I had some data in there that I needed to make available to you, perhaps we could create a DB link between them, uh, for instance. Uh, but the security aspects, DBAs have never been very happy with that solution. So m- 
usually what would happen is one of us would write a, a data integration process to move data from my database to your database so that you could uh, uh, have that data available. What Snowflake realized was that they're running a cloud platform where all of their customers' data basically sits in the same architecture, and they could make data available between customer accounts. Um, when I have a Snowflake database, I don't have my own server. I'm not running my from a storage perspective, right? They've separated compute from storage. So my storage is not sitting in, in, in a, a local storage on a, on a, on a VM. It's sitting in a shared storage architecture. So it becomes very, very easy with just really some metadata pointers and security privileges being granted, et cetera, for, for any Snowflake customer to query any other Snowflake customer's data without having to move it. And so that's, I mean, I, I just think about this from from the perspective of a, of a, of a company that where they're selling data uh, as a service. Um, they could easily build that data in Snowflake, and there's there's customers that are doing this. Make that data, uh, build that data once in Snowflake, and just share it out to other Snowflake customers. And there's really no architectural difference between querying my storage and your storage from a Snowflake perspective. It's really brilliant. So that sort of data share house concept will will eliminate so much unnecessary data movement to quote the Amazon guys, um, undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? There's no value there in moving that data. It's just, it's just heavy lifting. So what, let's remove that heavy lifting, remove all of the monitoring process that had to watch this data integration and just query the data where it sits. Does that, does that happen that often though, really? I mean, are there many customers that want to share their data with other customers? I mean, I thought, if anything, that's the last thing they want to do, really. I mean, that actually would be maybe introducing a concern into their mind that this data is really only partitioned by very thin kind of Chinese walls, really. I mean, is it something they've got, are they getting take up of this or, or what? But from my understanding, so we tech, we don't have any Snowflake customers that are that are actively doing that. But, uh, but you know, absolutely, I think uh, people are thinking about this, even... Snowflake sells into departments a lot as well, so they're not sell- they're not always selling into IT. So it's not uncommon for uh, one enterprise customer to have multiple Snowflake accounts. So that becomes immediately valuable because what would I have? Because now you're not, you know, you can imagine a customer saying, "Well, let's think about Snowflake, but let's let's take a long sales cycle because we want to find out every department that might want to use snowflake and let's let's get everybody on board and let's create a snowflake uh, data warehouse you don't have to do that so departments can spin up snowflake instances and share data between them and and i think uh, you know i'm not a security expert but that this stuff's really secure i mean ssh keys and encryption and all of that um, i i don't think customers should be concerned about their data sitting in a cloud platform no, and I guess going back to the uh, Paul Sonderiger episode of uh, Drills Detail, he talked about data monetization and exactly. data capital. I mean, this is, yes, it's a very forward-looking architecture, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is your, it is so, um, the, some of the cust- uh, companies that you've been talking about on the show for the, for the last couple of years, these are, these, are, these are companies where the data is the product. I think I may have said that actually on, on our first first time I came on your show and the data is the product and and, and the idea of, of that being your capital um, I think where where you work today it's very much very much true that, that, that the data is the most important thing that that the entire sort of platform sits on 
Absolutely. Okay, so let's get on to building analytics at Google. So um, I bumped into you in London a little while ago um, <clears throat> with a rather kind of rather smug look on your face uh, and your <laughs> colleagues as you were actually working in Google doing some BI projects for them. So uh, we had dinner and you talked to, talked to me about it and what you were doing. Um, just tell us about uh, tell us a bit about the, that project at Google, um, who it was for, and um, I suppose what was what interested you at the start about it before we get into the detail. Absolutely. So a quick shout out to the team that worked on it because I forgot to mention them when I recorded mm. the Google Cloud podcast. Uh, so Phil Gert, who was uh, and Emily Carlson were the two and myself were the were the three people that worked on the project. So I, I got that out of the work. way. They did the work and you argued. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I sat and watched. <laughs> um, so uh, it was for Google Play Marketing. So it's a it's a team of actually Google Play Marketing Communications. So these are the folks that try to 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 be helpful to Android developers, really anything that's being being mostly Android developers. So um, uh, they are trying to engage with these developers and make it easier for them to to deploy Android based applications. So that involves you know outreach to them uh, through a, a variety of digital channels. Some of them, being public Google platforms, some of them being private Google platforms, and some of them being complete non-Google platforms at all. Those are the different avenues they use. So Twitter, LinkedIn, Medium, they, they blog using Medium, um, and then some of the internal Google platforms which involve YouTube, Google Analytics, AdWords, uh, their internal email marketing uh, platform, which is not a public Google thing. Um, these were all some of the sources that that they they were looking at trying to to ingest into a single place. As Dom Elliott, who was uh, our main uh, stakeholder from, the, from Google, would say that that you know all of these platforms have analytic capabilities, but they would be going between these different platforms all the time and pulling data and trying to put it together to give a unified view of of user engagement and the health of, of, of the Android channel, really. Hmm. So they decided that what they really like to do is they had been looking at Data Studio and saw all the, the great sort of visualizations and capabilities that Data Studio provided. They knew that instead of you know building these monthly data decks in Google Slides with all of this compi manually compiled data, that they could create a Data Studio uh, document that had all of this in it. And so... But they knew they had to get the data into a single place. So they chose the Google Cloud Platform mostly because um, they're, they're not engineers. They're marketers, and, and they didn't necessarily have access to Google engineers. They probably could have found some, but, but it was much easier for them to simply really engage a company like ours that has expertise in the public cloud and to just do all of this running in the Google public cloud. Yeah, so so there's actually a podcast you recorded with uh, with them, which is out on uh, iTunes as well at the moment. We'll get we'll get the we'll get the kind of address of it later on and, and so on. But I was Thanks listening that. to that, and I was listening to that, and uh, again going green with uh, envy while I was listening <laughs> to it because I mean, interestingly, the, a lot of the a lot of the technologies you're working with, and I'll get you to explain those in a second, are things that we're using at Qubit. Um, yep. but you also got to work with Google, which is interesting, and you built, I suppose, an entire. Uh, I suppose data ingestion process using APIs and using things like PubSub and, uh, and 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 so on. So just tell us a bit about the how where, where did APIs come into it and what was the primary way in which you ingested data from those sources into BigQuery? 
So I'll start with the non-API stuff first and then get into the API stuff. So we also used BigQuery Data Transfer Service, which is a sort of pre-built data integration uh, platform. You just you enable it in the browser with, a, with four or five clicks, where if you have data sitting in a, in a supported Google platform, such as AdWords, I think it's AdWords, yeah, YouTube, um, other things, then you can just do a few clicks specify your uh, BigQuery data set where you want this to be replicated, specify a few things like table pre prefixes and whatnot, and it'll automatically um, start moving that data over, and then you can go back and also do historical loads, and you just sort of click a month at a time or a quarter at a time. Um, so we did uh, utilize um, the data transfer service for the things that were low-hanging fruit Google platforms. But then there was this whole series of other data sets um, that weren't in Google platforms. Twitter, LinkedIn, Medium were the were the sort, and we also did Google Plus, um, and um, investigated some others and had some others on the roadmap before before the time ran out. So um, so the the API driven approach was that all of these platforms have data readily available behind REST APIs. And so the, the, the primary way of, of getting data from these platforms is not the way we would have done it in the old days, which is, you know, think of this relationally. It's probably in a relational database of some kind. We want it to go to BigQuery, which is relational. So let's get some ETL tool that go, does relational to relational. Um, that's not really how the modern world works. It's all API driven. So, you know, we considered uh, Dataflow, uh, which is, you know, the Apache Beam SDKs running uh, as a runner in uh, cloud data flow with the Google platform. But there's several things that didn't really make that um, ideal for us. One is that um, it's, you, don't, you don't write data flow in JavaScript, it's Java and Python, and that's not necessarily problematic, except there's no real pre-built connectors for streaming from REST and other things. There are, there are some connectors planned and uh, under development. But at this point, there was no real easy way for us to have used Dataflow. And also, since there weren't any Dataflow streaming capabilities for any of this anyway, we would have either had to write those connectors or use something like Apache uh, Airflow to try to or orchestrate these sort of processes. And our driving principle for, for this project was to not introduce any amount of comp complexity that wasn't necessary because our customer had no engineering resources at the end of the day really to support whatever we built. So then we started looking at this very much from an API-driven approach, uh, sort of the way that you might look at it if you were building an application, uh, a, fr a, a front-end application, is that we wanted to go call these APIs, get data, and then build an event-driven workflow that processed the, the, those data ingestions and landed them uh, in a couple of places. Uh, BigQuery was primarily where we were reporting on it, but we also uh, did a data lake-like functionality by loading it to, to Google Cloud Storage as well. So the raw data was written to, to Google Cloud Storage. So ingested so app engine is the is the application we wrote we wrote javascript code in app engine to actually go out to these different apis and pull it and then app engine would ingest that stuff into pubsub those those uh, messages and then from there we had cloud functions which are um, you know small bits of javascript that run in a multi-tenant uh, serverless architecture that just respond to those data ingestions and do things. And so the whole pipeline is really a combination of App Engine at the front, 
uh, ingesting data into PubSub and cloud functions, uh, listening to PubSub with multiple subscriptions and doing different things with the data once it okay. landed. Okay, so tell us what was it like? What was it like developing in Google Data Studio? Because I've, I've sort of been impressed with it in some respects. And I like the fact it's part of, I suppose, Google Apps, uh, and you've got the whole kind of Google Drive integration. But exactly compared to what we're used to using, which is yeah, you know, the ability to blend data from different sources and so on, it's quite primitive in some respects. I mean, what, what was again for anybody who's new to Google Data Studio? Just maybe just paint a picture of what it's like first of all. But what was it like developing using it? Absolutely. It's it's primarily a, a data visualization tool. So uh, you're building uh, visualizations on a, on a click and drag palette. Um, it's sort of got a desktop publisher feel to it. Um, and you build um, uh, data connections and define those data connections. It's in a separate uh, a file. And then you can configure different uh, SQL queries to go against uh, data and um, at the sort of the, the page level. So yes, from uh, from a big box BI tool perspective with complicated metadata layers, even uh, even reactive metadata layers like like Looker has, um, you might think this is a non-starter, but but really. It's so easy to to transform data the way you need it and land it in BigQuery that we just, you know, sort of in the old school, sort of pre-BI tool days when you had to get the data into a model that was easily report, um, easy to report against, you sort of have to take that same approach with Data Studio because it's not going to mash up data sets effectively for you. I mean, you can um, you can. You can have multiple data sets on the same, uh, they're technically called a report, but you can think of it like a dashboard page. But you can't blend data together in a, in a single SQL query, for instance, the way we're kind of used to. So we knew that, uh, that we were going to have to do a data transformation piece. Uh, and, and instead of using an ETL tool, we just did that in, the, in our event-driven uh, architecture. Uh, we're having to blend streaming API messages with batch API messages. We're just doing the, all of that in cloud functions and, and writing it BigQuery. So we did curate the, the data set quite a bit um, and sort of elevate, uh, you know, create that, that good old fashioned model that's easy to report against. And then Data Studio really, really uh, was very easy um, with that sort of modeled data. Okay, so so I actually have worked at Google in the past, and I was there with uh, with, with Michael Rainey a few years ago, and um, and they're an interesting company to, to to work with. I mean, what was it like? Um, what was it like dealing with Google, and what were they like as a customer? And I suppose how applicable is their situation and their requirements to the other customers you deal with? Because surely it's on a massive scale and completely different sets of users and requirements. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you have to kind of think about who our customer was. So our customer was was an in, was simply some end users, right? I don't mean to minimize that, but they weren't engineering folks. They 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 weren't um, you know there weren't uh, how do I say this? There weren't IT restrictions or constraints being being imposed upon us. It was just simply what's in Google Cloud Platform. Anything that's in Google Cloud Platform is applicable. We obviously had to deal with certain teams and things about. Uh, privileges and permissions to internal Google systems, but in general, the sort of the the, the size uh, of Google really didn't come into play because we were working with a, a small department within Google. 
So from that, it was almost more like working with a startup, to be honest with you. They had they had visualization and data requirements. Um, they said anything that's that can be done in the Google Cloud Platform is 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 on the table. Uh, now we started, um, you know, removing certain technologies from scope uh, immediately based on whether or not we thought the customer could support it once we left. That was a very big requirement for us, which was. You know, these weren't engineers. They needed to be able to support this once we left. So whatever we built, it needed to continue to run, to scale, to do all of those things uh, after we left. Yeah. So and it was in King's Cross. I think Google around King's Cross. I mean, that's 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 changed quite over the years, isn't it? Since you were there with me uh, quite a few yeah, years ago. <laughs> yeah, so many years back. It is uh, quite posh now to use the yes. British term. Uh, yes. It is. Uh, gentrified um yeah well, it was quite horrific when you were there when you, when you and i were there before yes, I, remember, I remember your absolutely. face coming over from atlanta it was certainly an eye-opener <laughs> wasn't it <laughs> it was the office is beautiful and and obviously yeah. it's got all, all the uh all the the great uh things that any google office has which is yes. tons of free food and yes. uh, lots of free coffee so that was yeah. uh that was we really enjoyed uh working there i mean it was we would look forward to the next uh, on-site trip we would have. Excellent. So, so just tell us where so you can get details of the presentation you did on that and the podcast, and then we'll get on to our special mystery guest afterwards. Yeah, certainly. So I, I gave a presentation called What We Learned Building Analytics for Google. I gave that at a Utah big data tech conference. Uh, you could probably at redpillanalytics.com. There's probably links there. Uh, I'm, uh, I'll provide you with some links more so that you can put in the show notes. Um, and then the and then podcast, um, um, I'm thankful that you'll also put the link to that podcast. It's the Google Cloud Pod, Google Cloud Platform Podcast, which I was already a huge fan of and listened to every every week, and was really honored to be able to uh, to to have been on and been a guest. So I uh, appreciate you putting show notes uh, and links to, in the show notes for that as well. Excellent. So now I'm going to try and patch you in now. So I'm going to try and patch our mystery mystery guest in um, now. <laughs> So if it goes quiet, it means it hasn't worked at all, and I'll have to kind of have to carry on recording in a second. But um, we're trying. I'm going to try and patch them in, and though this is a complete mystery to to you, Stuart, as well. So uh, it's. Uh, but you're going to. I can't them. wait. So, so so you're going to do the. You're going to you're going to greet our guest, and you're going to do the interview, and I might chip in occasionally. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting, Gink, seeing you seeing as you were actually our first ever um, guest. To actually hand over the reins for a little bit and let somebody else uh, do the questions and. Uh, We'll see how it goes. So I'm just going to see if I can patch them in now. I actually don't know how to do this in Skype. So let's uh, let's try and do this now. Now I'm about to send a gift to you there, actually. So that's not it. Okay. So <laughs> let's try and do that now. Uh, hello, hello. Oh hello. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Stuart. How are you doing, Mr. mate? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Oh, anytime. <laughs> So Stuart, Stuart's going to do the Stuart's going to do the, the most of the interview now. So Stuart, do you want to ask uh, Alex to introduce himself and uh, I've given you your questions and off you yeah, go. Let me well, let me take over and see how the uh, the hosting uh, jacket fits. So with us is Mr. Alex Gorbachev from Pythian. Uh, Alex, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself properly to anyone who hasn't uh, listened to the podcast before? Uh, I don't think I've ever been on the Mark's podcast, so. Um, <laughs> Maybe that'll be the last time as well, depending how I do it. Huh? Um, so, hi <laughs> everyone. So my name is Alex Alex Gorbachev. I'm uh, working at Pythian. 
Been with the company for 11 years, been doing everything from managing uh, databases to building uh, a new business in a new region and uh, being our CTO and um, incubating a new practices such as big data, uh, DevOps and data science. And uh, today I'm actually heading our enterprise data science practice. So that's uh, something exciting. Oh, that's fantastic. So when we saw each other down in Brazil earlier, or uh, actually last year, uh, you were doing something a little bit different. Is this uh, this this new role? It's it's reasonably new, yes? Uh, yes and no. Um, I started our data, uh, big data practice more than four years ago. And as part of this, uh, we started the data science practice about three years ago, which, you know, been uh, developing since then. Um, in the last couple of years, I've been more focused on Python internal digital transformations. Right. Um, you know, basically uh, converting our systems to agile, modern uh, software in a cloud. And, uh, you know, I learned a thing or two about, uh, uh, you know, um, cloud architecture, software, uh, agile software development and things like that. So um, that Excellent. was interesting. Uh, interesting, and now I took back our data science practice in order to apply what I learned in the data science because it turned out that's a big gap. Yeah, Mark is miserable. He's got two agile advocates on the on the show at one time. He doesn't know <laughs> what to do with himself. So uh, I got a few prepared questions, Alex, that that Mark has peppered me with. I'll I'll maybe modify them a bit as I as I go through. But yeah, yeah, just the starter. Yeah. Excellent. So what um, So what is your first memory of meeting me? Oh, dude, the, the, problem, the, the, problem, the problem is that the first time I've met Stuart might have been just a hard day to be memorable at all, you know, based <laughs> on our stay there. Because I think it was at UKUG in Birmingham, if I'm not... I believe you're right. Stuart, please help me. I believe you're um, right. Yeah, and it must have been at the, you know, pub by the canal, by the Birmingham, you know, conference center. Probably very late as well. Yeah, that's so, my memory at least. And you were still very much uh, the Oracle database expert at that time, the Oracle uh, rack guy. Yeah, at that time we were, you know, more around Oracle technologies. Yes, that is correct. So that leads well into the next question, which is, is Oracle still relevant? Well, yeah, it's a very big company, and they have a very many customers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So by all means, it is still relevant. <laughs> okay, and so uh, we'll drive and in, drill into that just a little bit. So, uh, in what way are they relevant? Um, obviously, their database business still has a lot of customers, but the new cloud things they're doing, and some of the new architectures, and and sort of trying to go after the Amazon and Google market for developers. Are, are they still maintaining relevance or uh, we'll say extending their relevance into some of those new avenues? Um, like, I think when it comes to, you know, like Oracle technology stack, um, you know, database and, you know, middleware, um, the strengths of Oracle and those technology stack, I think, coming from two sides. You know, they have a very strong, solid, mature customer base that also have Quite a, uh, quite a bit of money to spend as opposed to, let's say, like a startup, unreliable startup scene, you know, right. evolving companies. So that's that's a big, big strength. Uh, of course, they have a, a solid, uh, mature technical product, being it a database. And, you know, the middleware server is not 
uh, that bad either. <laughs> um, uh, one of the leading um, Java middleware servers, right? Yeah. Um, so, and, uh, you know, they have some strengths in the BI space as well, although that space, you know, is, uh, I think, much more competitive. Uh, but I think the challenge that they have is that although the technology is mature and very capable, and, you know, when it comes to relational databases, arguably uh, the number one, um, unless you ask maybe somebody from Microsoft side, but, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, I think the problem is that the technology that Oracle has and their business model especially is not quite uh, aligned with the modern uh, cloud-native architectures and the trends, like, you know, uh, architect stuff out of microservices, make right. it uh, commodity-based, uh, make it... Uh, um, scalable, like differently than Oracle products normally scale and so on. And, you know, Oracle, like adding some shims into their product space in order to make it look like that. Yeah. But the foundation of that are quite different. Now, having said that, the vast majority of enterprise applications and uh, are where are reasonably large companies spending money on today still are full of those monolithic um, you know, type architected apps. You know, right. so and they're not really going to go anywhere easily anytime soon, right? So re-architecting them, we both know, is very hard and expensive. So generally, like, the way that this technology is phased out is that they replace, like, with different type of applications. And oftentimes, it's SaaS apps these days. Yep. So um, as a result, Oracle's push into SaaS space is very understood. It's definitely the right way to go. And they also try to re restructure um, and reinvent the technology space as well, which is traditional strength, uh, strength of Oracle. Excellent. So we're gonna we're gonna uh, shift into a different direction a little bit. So um, you and Mark were both two of the the, the people that um, I recognize from the traditional BI, or, sorry, traditional Oracle space that that really got out in front of Hadoop, and you were both uh, you know proposing it and and really evangelizing it very early on. Um, is it still relevant though? As has the architect have cloud architectures made Hadoop no longer relevant? I guess it depends what you what you um, um, put in the name Hadoop, right? I mean, early on, uh, from my perspective, when I look at it, there's two major things that Hadoop was bringing on, you know, three to four years ago. On one hand, it brought a, an architecture which is scalable and affordable, or which allows to build affordably and scalably large-scale data systems, right? And yeah. in, in, in many ways, it was because of, you know, um, HDFS uh, and, you know, uh, early on MapReduce and later on some other distributed frameworks. Yeah. And that worked, you know, really well. However, at least the, 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 the HDFS paradigm, it wasn't quite designed for the public cloud infrastructure the ways that we know it today, right? It was more designed on colloc... The, the, way, the, the way it was designed this way is to, you know, create a certain architectural decisions of collocating data and storage together because it's really hard and expensive to, you know, to separate them. And right. uh, the public cloud vendors went different ways, right? Instead of doing that, they actually optimize their systems so that's actually affordably to have a large scale networking um, and storage throughput capacity to a certain degree, right? But for the most, you know, mere mortal applications, you don't need any more this HDFS-like architectures because the, 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 the commodity 
uh, commodity price cloud, you know, infrastructures are capable enough in order to process a lot of the a lot of the workloads without you know this this you know architecture and compromises that come with that. So that's that's what I think was relevant three four years ago when it comes to Hadoop, which is something that's right now not very relevant. Now another part uh, of Hadoop and why it was popular is that it's also created an ecosystem of like integrated tools and products that kind of worked really well together. And yeah. when you are early on in the kind of a new space, new evolving space, having something to kind of unite around and uh, 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 integrate around was very it's important. The value of the, sorry to interrupt you. Is the value of the yeah, distribution right? Exactly right, and another another uh, few distribution you know vendors, Cloudera, Hortonworks, um, and Mapar like came in and created distributions around those. Um, then, then um, it become really really easy to to collect a variety like of uh, uh, open source mostly components and make them work together yeah. reasonably seamlessly, right? So that was really important. It's kind of still important, although the space has matured significantly these days, and with the offerings from, you know, uh, our cloud vendors, those offerings themselves become very mature, and you know, overlapping a lot with what Hadoop ecosystem been bringing. And uh, you know, thanks to proliferation of APIs and uh, uh, understanding how to design and uh, create products that are more microservices like that, easily integrated and embeddable this kind of become easier uh, without, you know, the need for a Hadoop distribution or some kind of a collection of a software that runs seamlessly together because cloud vendors started doing that. And Fantastic answer. allow us to do that. So that's kind of how I see Hadoop becoming less relevant today. Yeah, fantastic answer. So we're going to shift again. And uh, what's it like being uh, in your current role at Pythian when your CEO is almost as well known as you, and and perhaps crazier. Yeah, that's my question as well. <laughs> yeah, that's Mark's question. Well, depends. Depends. Sorry, depends where you look at. He would, <laughs> he would be much more uh, known than me for sure, uh, or in more areas. Is the, uh, I guess maybe some context. Some context for me. I mean, I guess what's it like? I mean, what's it like working in a place where it's very dynamic and your CEO is very kind of forward-looking? And things change very often, and your job is to keep everything running at the end of the day. Keep the trains running. Well, yeah, uh, I think, uh, I think, first of all, I think at Pissant there's much more people who are responsible for doing that other than me and Paul. Mm. Another company grew bigger, there were significantly more. So I think, you know, if maybe five years ago I've been kind of playing more prominent role and I'm probably just being humble possibly, mm -hmm. but uh, I think today there's a significantly more um, bright people and Pithin is bigger uh, itself. Yeah. That there's a more than just, you know, me and Paul that are visionaries and significantly more. Like if you look at our blog and you see who mm -hmm. is there, if you look who's presenting at the conferences, which is, you know, not only in Oracle, Microsoft and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my, my, my SQL space these days, we presented at big data conferences. Uh, and the DevOps conferences and uh, uh, etc. So, um, what is it like? Is like, oof, well, I <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing it really well, right? Like, I've been like changing my 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 my, my jobs quite uh, quite uh, rapidly, right? Like, I've been even as a CTO, I've been working on internal uh, systems for some time. Then I shifted to grow practices. Then I shifted to do some internal digital transformations again. 
now I shifted my focus as opposed to being a more global CTO of the company. I actually narrowed it down to a data science practice, right? Hmm. So um, um, I, I think like from my personal perspective, I really like, I mean, as you said, when the company is dynamic and, you know, keeping hmm. keeping uh, up with the trends in the industry, and then that gives us ability to do what we want and focus where we want. Sometimes it's a, you know, a broader focus as a CTO. And sometimes in this case, I'm, you know, passionately building our uh, data science products and uh, service offerings. So the next uh, series of questions, Alex, I'm going to ask you to choose. A, uh, I'm going to ask you to choose between two technologies. You pick one of them and you tell me why you would choose it. So first is Google Spanner versus Amazon Aurora. Well, that's a tough one, depending on our criteria, how we evaluate them. I would pick Google Spanner uh, for a more long term as a technology that's definitely been designed to be cloud native and uh, 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 from scratch based on, you know, very mature research that's been done. Uh, so I feel long term, the Google Spanner is a significantly more innovative approach. I would pick Aurora for many day-to-day -day tasks today as a more mature uh, technology. A more mature technology, a more known to uh, people who used to MySQL. Um, but, you know, Aurora is uh, leveraging a lot of and kind of constrained to some degree by MySQL as a yep. kind of a framework that it's, that, it, that it's built on. So to some degree, that's kind of limiting to it. So it depends what, you, what you're asking for. I think long-term is my baddest spanner as the innovation to follow and focus on. In the short term, I think Aurora is more usable. Yeah. Do you see an, cases. Do you see an organization maybe building a massive online transactional system using Spanner? Are the are those days ahead of us? Um, well, Google itself supposedly did that, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's still reasonably young product, right? So, um, is it out of beta yet? Even it was right, GA. It is. That's uh -huh. my understanding. Yeah, so um, I think it's still relatively new. So, like, I haven't worked on a large-scale Spanner deployments yet. Okay. Um, so I couldn't kind of comment um, comment on that. But uh, Aurora has definitely been around more and been used much more, and uh, we've had many customers at Python who's been leveraging it. Uh, so, of course, proliferation of Aurora is bigger right now than Spanner. Okay, so s similar choice between uh, the same two companies, but different technology. Google BigQuery or Amazon Athena? Mm, good question. Um, I think uh, our, you would probably be better comparing. Well, let me, uh, let me put it this way. The combination, so BigQuery versus the combination of Redshift, Spectrum, and Athena. Ah, you, now you made it harder to answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, the Redshift is basically, you know, glorified parasol technology on steroids, right? On the Postgres yep. based on its own, right? So again, if you just compare Redshift with something like BigQuery, again, long-term BigQuery, it's been redesigned from scratch. It's uh, a much more cloud-native architecture. It has completely customized execution and storage engine design just for, for for each other. And at the same time, it also enables, you know, the most uh, 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 
the way Athena runs or uh, Redshift Spectrum, right? When you actually decouple storage from from um, uh, compute, which is, you know, interesting thing, like, just like as you see what's been done in Hadoop, like it's now found all its ways in a cloud, non-Hadoop technologies as well, right? As a, right. As a sidetrack from what we talked about before. Uh, I, my view on this is, uh, is based on this. Um, Amazon being, as I'll know, they develop some of the things from scratch. Amazon, I feel, is much more known from taking some of the existing uh, products, specifically open source products, such yeah. as Presto for Athena or Postgres-based, you know, Paracel, which isn't itself open source, but on Postgres, and then taking this and uh, base a product uh, out of this. Now, I wish they would also actually contribute more of that stuff back to open source, which is, you know, a bit of a sore spot for me personally. The way Google they, does, right? Uh, yeah, I would I would much prefer the way Google does it. And uh, although Google BigQuery isn't itself open source, right, the Google kind of based made it based on, you know, their own research and published a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, for us to use. So from that perspective, I think I would pick up uh, a, a big courage as it's much more community, I think, um, um, friendly <laughs> and respectful uh, option. So next is the Google uh, Kubernetes engine versus ECS or the Elastic Container Service in Amazon. Uh, I think Kubernetes is winning the world on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that, that one's been solved, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and even Amazon is like supporting Kubernetes. How it is, Stuart? You mentioned uh, 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 Google Cloud Functions earlier on, and obviously there's Lambda Functions in AWS yeah. and so on. I mean, mm -hmm. to, to, to both of you, really. I mean, is that the next a, a serverless kind of functions and so on? Is that, is that the next thing people are going to be using to build, um, I don't know, applications and, and event-driven things in the cloud? You want to go first, Alex? Yeah, I strongly believe that this is uh, the next move after containerization actually i don't know if it's in parallel with it i think it's more higher level of abstraction how you run your code than just containers so um i think it's maybe it may need to be more broad uh more broad um to kind of completely win uh, over containers and make containers irrelevant but i definitely think it's our sort of more of a bleeding edge compared to just containers. And uh, in this case, it's interesting because AWS seems to be somewhat ahead of Google when it comes to serverless functions. Um, yeah. um, and uh, Google is kind of, is a little, I feel like behind with their cloud functions, the way that they adopted and uh, the functionality of them on GCP and much more pushing towards containers and take leadership in container space. Yeah, Lambda still, you know, Lambda gives you the ability to actually schedule functions. So the problem that Google has with cloud functions is you still need something else to sort of kick off the event-driven architecture. There's, You can't write the complete thing. Um, so, for instance, the project we discussed earlier, Mark, is is that's the main reason we had App Engine, is that uh, cloud functions couldn't couldn't itself init initiate the workflows. So Lambda d certainly has the ability for you to schedule functions. And so you can write your code, I would argue, completely, uh, depending on what you're trying to deliver, completely within one uh, one platform using Lambda. So, so the next question, Alex, and it is the last one, and obviously it's a good one based on your earlier responses. <laughs> 
which is uh, how do you keep yourself so current? I mean, obviously, you've got uh, broad command of traditional technologies. Um, most people who know you for a long time know that, but also you're well-versed in, in modern technologies, and you seem to be right there on the bleeding edge. How do you, how do, you do it? Well, I think that's a lesson I learned from the number one, Paul Valley, and this is why he's the number one. Um, one of the strategies he taught me is to, you need to surround yourself with the brilliant people who are mostly better than you at most things. And, 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 part, of that, and part of that is that you end up learning from them a lot because you look like a stupid idiot if you don't. It's like the no bozo factor <laughs> in Apple. Right? Exactly. You got to do it. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of learning from the peers. Uh, of course, it's quite a bit of reading and trying things sometimes. Of course, it's impossible to try, you know, a lot of things yourself these days and stay current in a broad area. So sometimes like, you make, you have to like reasonably be reasonably shallow on certain things, but it's a uh, yeah. It's uh, have a big picture in mind and ability to get your hands dirty and go um, and go uh, do some some coding. Just before you 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 conference me in, Mark, I've just been you know coding our scikit-learn new scikit-learn pipeline with one of our data scientists here. So I keep my hands dirty at the same time. So Stuart, excellent. Ask questions to you as well. I mean, you've been, you've been. I mean, you and I have been doing consult. Well, you've been doing consulting now, especially the last couple of years. How, how do you still motivate yourself? I mean, it's, it's. You know, you're running a business. You're, you're keeping yourself. I mean, for we joking, you know, you, 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 you know, you are pretty on the ball when it comes to technical stuff, and and uh, and you know, you're running a business. How, how do you, how do you keep yourself kind of motivated and, and current as well? Uh, it's it's really easy. Like if I was an insurance salesman, um, this would be my hobby. I think um, uh, th this is my hobby. Um, it's the thing I'm most interested in, and so when it comes time, when I have a little bit of downtime, I'm not I'm not actively doing, you know, uh, business, uh, running the business or whatever. And I have a little bit of time. I'm I'm I'm, you know, dipping in my toe into some technology. I'm trying something out. I'm spinning up a Docker container and seeing how some new piece of technology works. So it really is that it, it, it's my hobby. <laughs> it's my yeah, I'm lucky that my hobby is actually how I how I earn a paycheck. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the same with all of us, really. I think it's if you're fundamentally interested in it, it fundamentally makes you get up in the morning thinking this is really exciting. Um, that's good, and it's. I think the industry's changed a lot, even just the time that we've been working with it. I mean, the days of big releases every kind of year, the, the, the days of, uh, of of spending most of our consulting projects actually installing the thing and not actually kind of built, getting value from it it's changed as well but i suppose the fundamental thing of how to solve a problem how to you know apply technology in use cases and and uh and those trade-offs as well between you know what like you said earlier on you know there's lots of technologies you could have used at google but you didn't because you wanted to make it sustainable you know that's i guess why you're still in business both of you sort of now well thanks very much for that um it was really a pleasure coming on and uh, alex you were a pleasant surprise my friend <laughs> Well, that's uh, it's uh, it's been a nice surprise too. Hey, I'm not doing too many of those these days, so it, it's fun. <laughs> I told him it was Don Burleson first of all, so, uh, so I think he was quite <laughs> pleased when it was uh, when it when it was you, Alex. Although that would have been interesting if it was uh, if it wasn't. So, well, so again, so thanks to both of you. Thanks to you for being sort of uh, a good sport as well. You, you generally had no idea who was coming on as the uh, guest, <laughs> and you've done brilliantly interviewing Alex. And Alex, thank you very much for coming on as well. It's been good to speak to you. And uh, I do remember the first time you two met actually, and I'm not surprised you can't remember it because it was uh, I think it was it was uh, it was it was Stuart's first introduction to the Tap and Spile and uh, and uh, the British Dream.
drinking culture. And uh, the, next, yeah. the next morning, I think about nine o'clock, which was uh, you gave <laughs> exactly up the right. next day wearing a suit and looking like you've been hit by a bus the night before. So uh, <laughs> I remembered, remembered it correctly then. <laughs> exactly. You did. Exactly. So thanks very much, both of you. And uh, take care and, uh, yeah, speak soon. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. And thanks, Stuart. tenant uh, cloud native platform where all uh, customers date my microphone just I can't. spontaneously fell over then actually sorry with my it must be the quality <laughs> of my jokes right so um carry on i'm gonna uh, uh, right, hang on a second i'm gonna edit that bit out there in a second so you were just saying um about something so carry on the bit you were yes, saying sure and i'll zip back in again yeah so um in the old days uh, so so what snowflake realized let me, let me start one more time mark yes um, think about data shit house as well so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just thought that as I was reading it. I thought it was quite good, actually. Excellent. So for the next question, I'm going to ask you a couple of things. I just want a yes or no answer for about the next three questions. Or, <sighs> sorry, not, not a yes or no, but uh, an A or B. It's multiple choice here, okay? So Spanner or Aurora? You have to give the context, but, you know, okay. Spanner. Amazon Spanner or Amazon Aurora? Spanner. Okay. Well, Big no, query. Okay. So Google after Spanner. After you've done this, after you've done this Aurora, let's have some context as well. But yeah, right. yeah. You, you want them to provide some yeah, context? Yeah, let's, let's stop a second, right? Let's do that again. Right? Okay. So what I meant with that was was actually to put that to, 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 I say, A or B, but then give us some reasons behind it. Yeah, so, so and I okay. think it's, it's an opportunity it. for you two to discuss those technologies a little bit, really. So, you got it. Um, yeah, I'll so, start then. Go on, then. Let, me re- let me restart with the question. <laughs> just to All say right. Stuart's so, had absolutely no preparation time for this and I had no idea of you coming on the call so he's doing pretty good so far actually Back on, Stuart. so uh so we're, we're gonna uh talk about a couple of specific technologies here next Alex and I want you to weigh in on uh, if I get I give you an option uh, an a or b option you you pick one of them and tell us a, a little reason why okay so first Amazon Spanner or Amazon Stuart, Aurora Stuart, Stuart. it's Google Spanner Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. Do it again. Do it again. I'm going to start again. <laughs> yeah. You'll sound like an idiot. You'll sound like an idiot otherwise. So go and do it again. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mark. Um, so, Alex, we're going to shift a little bit here. It's not normal then. Right. So, I'm now into my normal normal way of thinking, right? Idiot mode. Um, okay. So, restart. Um, 